Well, good morning. When we were in the green room, green room is basically when we pray before the service and kind of go over the different elements of things that are going to happen. Mark Ludwig uh, prayed uh, for us as we end our study of 1 Corinthians. I said, that's wishful thinking, man. Actually, for Mark, it is the end. This is Mark's last Sunday with us. He and his family are abandoning us. Um, Sorry, they're moving to Western Maryland. If we weren't mad that you were leaving, you know, we would be, you know, like offering to help you move and holding the door for you as you exit and stuff. But but no, today we are ending just the first quarter of 1 Corinthians. Um, The title of the sermon, Trouble Ahead, Trouble Behind, is um, not because I'm a Grateful Dead fan, but there is a lot of trouble going on in the church of Corinth, as we've seen. This first four chapters, the trouble behind us so far, Paul has written to this church, the Apostle Paul, who founded this church, is writing to them, to this church that is a church of God, that is sanctified in Christ Jesus, that is called to be holy, this church that has been filled with grace in Christ Jesus, enriched in every way. This church in which Paul's testimony of Christ was confirmed. This church that lacks no spiritual gift as they eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. This church that will be kept strong to the end, that will be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is in fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. This church is a mess. This church is an absolute mess. And the problems that Paul's talked about in the first four chapters have had to do with divisions, had to do with factions. It seems that in this church there have developed these groups, these teams. People are taking sides. They're picking one leader that they like over against another one. So one person says, well, I'm on Paul's team. And another says, well, I'm on Apollos' team. Another says, well, I follow Peter. Another says, I follow Jesus. The, the problem is, for one thing, it's kind of dumb. I mean, the, the church at Corinth, when Paul's writing this, is probably about the size of, like, New Hope on a Sunday in August. All right? So imagine, like, this many people having three or four different factions. Right? That's just silly, for one thing. But, but the problem is it's undermining the unity of the church. It's causing all kinds of problems. It's got people focused on particular human leaders, human teachers, rather than on the one that they're teaching about. And there's no indication at all that any of these leaders is trying to make this happen. Paul nowhere here is saying that Apollos is, is rolling into Corinth and trying to get people to, to follow him or, or that, that Peter is making trouble in Corinth. That, the problem is that the people in Corinth have decided, for whatever reason, it would be a really good idea if we kind of picked sides and then started fighting. You know, there is something to be said for friendly rivalry. There is something to be said for being fond of a particular teacher. I have friends who are Calvinists, and they're Calvinists in ways where they, they have affection for John Calvin, and they find his teaching to be helpful I have friends who are Lutheran, and they think that the way Luther read the Bible makes a lot of sense, and it 
the way he wanted to organize the church is a good way to do it. I recently joined the, the Episcopal Church. I'm now an Anglican. This means, among other things, that I had to learn a, all kinds of new terminology, but it also means that I kind of identified myself with a particular team, this particular branch of the family tree of the church that comes out of the Church of England, that for whatever reason, we all think it's terrific that we started off with King Henry VIII wanting to divorce somebody, and the Pope wouldn't let him, so he started his own church so that he could. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, what can I say? When my Catholic friends remind me of that, I say, you know, this really all started off with Jesus designating Peter, who had just denied him three times. So it's not like anybody's in particularly good shape. So there's nothing wrong with being fond of, 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 of a particular teacher. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I, I think his way of making sense of this makes sense. I, I don't think Paul would have had problems with people in Corinth who said, you know, I just, I really, I, I think the way that, that Apollos is teaching the gospel is the one that really resonates the most for me and, and helps me most to, to understand what it means to live for Christ. Paul would say, that's great. And if that's me, that's great. And if it's Peter, that's great. The problem is you're going around saying, well, I'm on team Apollos, and that means I'm better than you. I mean, that's fun when you're at the ballpark, you know? Like I'm going to the ball game today. And, and I, there's a good chance that I will cheer on Manny Machado as he's right in front of me. And there's a good chance I may say something impolite about one of the Astros. It's not that I have any real hostility for the city of Houston or people who come from there or the person who's swinging the bat. This is just part of what it is to be at a ball game. And when you tell somebody to sit down after he strikes out, it's just fun. It's part of what it is. You wouldn't do it in real life. But, but this is real life that's going on in court. And it's a real mess. The fact is, Christ is not divided. Paul is not the one who was crucified for anybody. Paul didn't baptize anybody in his own name. No, this is, the, the church is all about Jesus. It's not about particular schools of thought. It's not about particular leaders. It's all about Jesus. And you know, the fact is, Paul says, we're... we're all of us who are leaders are all going to have the quality of our work judged or assessed at some point. And, and, and then you'll know kind of who was the most effective leader. Right now is not the time you're supposed to be trying to figure that out. The whole point is that we're doing this for the sake of building God's kingdom. We're doing this for the sake of Jesus' glory. We're building Jesus' church here by the power of the Spirit. We're not trying to set up our own little movements. So don't deceive yourselves, Paul says. Those of you who think that you are particularly wise, those who think that you are in the spiritual gifted class because you have identified the right teacher. The fact is that what is wise in this world is foolish in God's eyes. And in fact, what we see as foolish in God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. It's all about Jesus. So because of this, Paul says, I'm I'm not writing to shame you. I'm writing this because I love you. I'm writing this because I care about you. I'm writing this because 
the health of your community is threatened by what you are doing in regard to following particular leaders, in regard to picking teams and having factions. And that's not the only problem. As we're going to see in the next 12 months, because we're ending this at the end of August 2017. You can come back if you want on that day, Mark, and then you can pray in gratitude. As you're going to see, there are all kinds of other problems going on in Corinth. Problems in Corinth don't just involve division and factionalism and doesn't just involve people being all haughty about their supposedly spiritual knowledge. You've got a problem, as we'll see later on, like in chapters 8 and 9, where you have people who are living in a way that absolutely just steamrollers over the consciences of their brothers and sisters in Christ. These folks are, are, are bulls in the china shop when it comes to the church, they, the way they live. They're like, well, i got the right to do this, so I'm going to do it, and I don't care what problem it causes you. And other people are, are, are so just clenched up about the way they think folk ought to live, they can't deal with anybody else exercising their liberty in Christ. You've got people so worried about particular ways of living that they're undermining the unity of the, of the body of Christ. They're causing more problems and tension in the church because of the way that they're handling these good things God gave us, but, but, but they're being used for evil. This is not, incidentally, the first time this has happened, Paul says. This, in chapter 10, has happened with Israel. And then and then he, we, we, we move on from there to the problem of the way that people are worshiping. In chapters 11 to 14, we've got a problem where, where in the church in Corinth, people are worshiping essentially the way they worship rather than Jesus. They're worshiping their mode of worship. They're so excited about the particular way that they worship, the experiences they're having in worship, that they don't care what that means for the glory of God. They don't care what that means for the unity of the church or for the reputation of Jesus in the community. They're, they're worshiping in, in ways that actually end up harming people. It's so bad, Paul says. Get this. This is, this is a pastor telling people. In chapter 11, he says... I would rather you didn't go to church than that you go to church and do what you do. This is not something that when I was in seminary they suggested was a good church growth model. This is not something that naturally comes to somebody who is trying to build this church. He's like, what you guys are doing is so awful. Really, you're doing so much more harm than good. I would rather you stayed home and read the New Corinthian Times on Sunday morning than do what you're doing. You're dishonoring our Lord. You are harming His body. You're oppressing and you are violating people who can't take care of themselves. You're so hopped up on the way that you worship, the way that you do your Jesus thing. You're getting your Jesus on in a way that may thrill you, but it's causing a lot of problems. 
It's harming the body of Christ. It's scandalizing other people. It's making us look like a bunch of idiots in the community. And and that leads me to think, Paul says, that maybe actually it's not really about worship for you. It's just about you kind of getting your worship on, which is a completely different thing. Now, Paul's going to say, what I want you to do is love one another. I want you to love one another in the way that you live, the way that you do the things that you do every day, and the way that you enjoy life. I want you to love one another in the way that you worship and the way that you gather. I want you to love one another in the way that you treat your leaders. And it's not just conduct that's the problem, and it's not just attitudes. There is a problem, as we'll see later on in chapter 15, with with bad, bad doctrine, bad ideas about Jesus. It seems like there are some folks who are saying that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. And Paul says that that's the case, and we are completely wasting our time. There's so many better things that we could be doing right now if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. If he was just this sadly misunderstood, really wise teacher who walked around, said a bunch of things, made the wrong people unhappy with him, and tragically got himself crucified. Um, if that's the end of the story, Paul says... Then, then we are a really sorry bunch of idiots. But actually, he did rise from the dead, which changes everything. One of the most majestic chapters in all of Scripture is chapter 15. We're going to hit that at Easter, which is all about resurrection. See how I kind of connected that there. But before we get to all this stuff, we are going to spend a very long time talking about sex. We're going to talk about human sexuality. We're going to talk about marriage. I'll just give you the warning right now that basically starting next week and going through the middle of January, every sermon here is going to be rated PG-13. We may find like all the kids wanting to not sit next to their parents for the next several months. Every sermon is going to be rated PG-13, not because we have any particular prurient interest in these topics. That's what the text is about. And so because this is so important, we are going to watch our speed and we are going to go at a measured pace through chapters 5, 6, and 7. And there are a lot of reasons for this and we'll talk about those as we, as we set that up and we'll talk about exactly why we're doing what we're doing the way we're doing it. This is just me warning you that this is coming up. Now, on December 25th, which is the Feast of the Nativity of our Lord, before I was Anglican, I knew it as Christmas, uh, we will not be in 1 Corinthians talking about sex, and neither on January 1st, which is the Feast of the Holy Name, or as Ron Lingenfelder calls it, Brismas. Um, we will not be. But other than that, we're going to be here in chapters 5 through 7 of 1 Corinthians, which is all about what it means to be married and what it means to not be married, what that's supposed to look like. And, and apart from, uh, we have one, one sermon about, about lawsuits that Rick's going to come and, and hook us up with. Um, so get your lawyer jokes ready for a couple of weeks from now. We're going to be talking about this. And we're talking about this because this is, it's in Scripture. So if it's in Scripture, it's, it's inherently something we need to recognize as important. But right now, right here in the place where we are, in the church, 
This is an, a topic on which there's a great deal of conversation, and we think that that should be informed well by what God has given us in His Word. I want to tell you, especially for those of you who were at New Hope 13 years ago, when we went through 1 Corinthians, and when we went through this section in a blazing four weeks or so, what we are teaching is not going to be anything different from what we taught 13 years ago. But it will be developed because we're going from four weeks to about four and a half months. And it will go into more extensive detail on the different ways that people understand these passages. More on that when we actually get going on that. But I want to make sure you know what's coming up. And I want, you to, make, I want to make sure you know that we're, we're doing this together. There's a prayer in the prayer book. It asks, in, in which we ask God to give us grace to lay to heart seriously the great dangers we are in by our unhappy divisions. One of the things I'm so grateful for about New Hope is the unity that we have in Christ together and the unity we have in relationship with one another. And I think it's because we are a strong and a unified and a healthy community, that we can go and work together through these kinds of difficult questions. I'm so glad that we have such a strong and mature group of youth. I'm not at all worried about our edge kids or our edge prime or edge classic or edge 2.0, whatever we're calling the high school group. I'm not at all worried about them being here and hearing this teaching. I know how well they have been prepared to hear the Word of God and to love Jesus in community, not least by Joe and by the other folks who are leaders and by one another. It was really, really fun this summer when I got to drop in on their week of service and I got to, to talk to them, see how well they are doing the work that God's called them to do. So we're going to do this together because we are the body of Christ. We are in fact, objectively, Paul would want to say, we are those sanctified in Christ Jesus. We are called to be holy. In Him we have been enriched in every way. This testimony about Christ that Paul gave nearly 2,000 years ago has in fact been confirmed in you, in us. We don't lack any spiritual gift as we await the revealing of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And He will keep us strong to the end. God who has called us into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. So let's join together in communion. As we always do here at New Hope, we'll stand together, we'll recite the, the Nicene Creed, which is a statement of what God's faithful people have believed for nearly 2,000 years after we do that, I'll invite you to come forward and receive the elements, and then uh, don't take them right away. Take them, grab them, bring them back to your seat. So you'll come up the center aisle, and then you'll receive the elements up in the chancel, and then you'll go out that little side door, uh, and then go back to your seats, and then we'll partake of them together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, 
light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.